And now I'd like to introduce our panel. We are joined today uh, by four speakers. First among them is Kevin Dirksen, who serves as Regional Director for Ethics at the Center and the Andy and Bev Hansel Endowed Chair in Applied Healthcare Ethics. The chair was established in 1998 to ensure the presence of ethical expertise in patient care and medical education at Providence, and most recently was named for Andy and Bev Hansel in 2020. Kevin has published in national and international peer-reviewed publications, such as the American Journal of Bioethics, the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management, Ethics, Medicine, and Public Health, and Medicine, Healthcare, and Philosophy. Kevin lectures widely from invited presentations to regional, national, and international conferences. Of late, he has found himself with ample opportunities to hone the role of moderating impressive, but sometimes unwieldy, panelists. <laughs> Dr. Woody English is the Vice Chair of the Oregon Advanced Directive Adoption Committee. He established and led the hospitalist service at Providence St. Vincent from 1998 to 2007. And in 2007, he co-founded the palliative care service there and eventually became medical director for palliative care for the Oregon region of Providence until his retirement in 2013. Since then, he has worked on various committees to revise the Oregon Advanced Directive, which came to fruition last June with passage of Senate Bill 199. His medical training has included certification in internal medicine, infectious disease, hospice, and palliative care. In retirement, he continues his activity on several committees for the Oregon Pulse, Pulse Coalition. And Jennifer Hopping is a licensed clinical social worker who completed her master's degree at University of California, Berkeley. She has 18 years of experience in hospital and clinic settings, the last 10 of which have been in palliative care. Jen works as a manager for Providence, Oregon, and continues to practice clinically in the inpatient and outpatient settings. She also teaches at CSU's Shiley Institute for Palliative Care. Jen serves as a member of the National Pulsed Paradigms Research and Quality Committee and a member of the Oregon State Legislature's Advanced Directive Adoption Committee. And finally, we are joined by another familiar face, Dr. Nick Cockler, who serves as Vice President for System Ethics Services. His research interests centers on the intersection of a broad array of disciplines, including health sciences, philosophical ethics, theology, and anthropology. He holds an interdepartmental doctorate in healthcare ethics, as well as other graduate degrees in the humanities and sciences, including a doctor of philosophy in healthcare ethics from Duquesne University, a master of science in biotechnology from Northwestern University, a master of arts in healthcare ethics, and a bachelor of arts in theology from Loyola University, Chicago. And now please join me in welcoming this outstanding panel. Thanks so much, Dr. Losher. It's a pleasure to be with everybody today and especially on the last grand rounds of the academic year. That way, if we all bomb as panelists today, you won't be back next week to complain to Stephanie and the team about how bad we did. So looking forward to uh, being with you again this year uh, and talking uh, a bit about uh, Oregon's new advanced directive with everybody. So um, our uh, objectives this morning, and I was tempted to begin uh, this with a very simple uh, one bullet point objective of let's talk about the new advanced directive in Oregon, but 
the imposter syndrome fit in and we have to sort of play up to convention. And so uh, we'll share with you what we shared in our marketing and distribution materials where uh, we're really hoping to uh, speak to uh, how the changes in the advanced directive here in Oregon are reflective of a long process to uh, respond to some of what we and others have observed as areas needing improvement, um, as well as being an iterative process for us to continue to work on future changes into the future. So if it seemed to be the case that this was merely sharing with you the sort of finished product, um, we'll start off at the top with a reminder that this is an iterative process and your comments, questions, feedback, both during this session uh, to us as panelists offline, uh, to Connections, Palliative Care Leadership in Oregon for those of you with Providence, um, as well as to our Advanced Directive Adoption Committee uh, members uh, will be extremely valuable as we continue to hone this into the future. And we'll share with you that uh, none of the panelists have an identified or disclosed conflict of interest. So every time that I present about advanced care planning, advanced directives, pulsed forms, and get to moderate an impressive panel of the same, I always like to sort of set the stage of, for instance, where does the advanced directive situate within? And for me, that's all about shared decision-making. Uh, shared decision-making for our house staff, for uh, other uh, healthcare professionals is really that gold standard where the patient is the expert in all things personal, values, goals, desirable health states to steer toward, undesirable health states to avoid, whereas the physician and the treating team are the experts in all things medical. So the prognosis, the diagnosis, the treatment options, uh, things to uh, possibly avoid, uh, possibilities that may not meet the patient's goals, values, perspectives. And the process can be synergistic in how uh, the healthcare team with the patient, with their loved ones, and when there's not um, uh, the patient available to make their own decisions, how we're working with a surrogate decision maker on their behalf. Uh, shared decision-making is a reminder that uh, for every patient, we're in unique territory. There's no one-size-fits-all setup where for every patient, there's the uh, recommended course of action. But shared decision-making is a reminder that uh, medical care ought to be patient-based and patient-specific. And in part, we need to understand who the patient is before deciding what treatment options uh, may be recommended, advisable, um, and the like. And at the end of the day, I think shared decision-making is nothing but making decisions. This is not a hypothetical conversation. It's not merely something we think about and then go on our merry way, but it's about making decisions. And there becomes a problem when we don't have a party to be able to make the acute decisions that need to be made. I'm a big word cloud guy, and so I plugged in a few years ago, uh, advanced care plan or shared decision making into a word cloud generator. Um, and so this is what uh, spits out. Uh, top, middle, ANC. If anyone figures out what ANC is, if one of my panelists knows, let me know. I don't know what that represents, but it's on the word cloud. Uh, and we also have a fancy definition for you to rely on as well. So I said that's two steps back. So what's one more proximate step to the topic we're actually discussing today? And that is advanced care planning. 
So advanced care planning, uh, the formal definition, a process to support adults in understanding and sharing their values, goals, preferences regarding future potential medical care decisions, choosing and preparing a trusted person or persons to make medical decisions and documenting these wishes so that they can be acted on when future medical decisions need to be made. And I read this definition to remind you that there are some pieces of shared decision making that fit in here to advanced care planning, yet we've got a bit of a temporal gap, right? Shared decision making is more that active, acute process with the patient in the moment about a given decision before them. And advanced care planning is much more thinking about, well, where could we be at um, in the future, given the patient's diagnosis, prognosis, conditions, all these sorts of things, or unexpected outcomes like that sort of doomsday scenario of we could all be in a motor vehicle accident, whether young, old, or somewhere in between. And so advanced care planning, there are pieces here that are very similar to shared decision making, albeit with the inability to do that acutely in the moment. So uh, thanks to our partners issuing massive strokes, devastating blunt force traumas to the head and other range of uh, clinical or uh, situations that can result in pretty precarious outcomes, we have the invitation to think about to do uh, advanced care planning. And so, you know, two of the situations that really precipitate that uh, for health, busy healthcare professionals are a patient's incapacity um, and that need to make a decision about a given treatment modality at a given moment in time. And so advanced care planning, uh, that process of thinking ahead of completing uh, an advanced directive, of filling out a pulse form with your doctor, uh, of having conversations with your loved ones about your wishes, um, can help situate how that future care can ensue uh, with, again, that inability to do that gold standard best process of a doc and a healthcare team talking with your patients. And you'll see my uh, glib tongue in cheek here at the bottom. Uh, don't make the mistake that some do with advanced uh, care planning or advanced directives um, and add a D. We're talking about not uh, sort of uh, optimized or high exceeding uh, level documents or paradigms, but we're talking about in advance. It's a temporal uh, distinction here. So that helps lead us into me sort of proverbial uh, handing the baton uh, to Dr. English, who's gonna talk a little bit uh, to you about this paradigm of advanced directives and where we're at in Oregon with the updated form today. So thank you, Kevin. <clears throat> the uh, advanced directive is a social experiment in the United States, which began about 50 years ago and is still evolving. It began informally at first as proposals then it was codified into law. And <clears throat> as uh, Lewis Kuttner uh, said, um, uh, it, uh, the, the law provides that a patient may not be subjected to treatment without consent. And so initially, this was a set of instructions, not unlike a last will and testament. In fact, it was called a living will. Uh, after about 15 years, the value of having a person speak on one's behalf was recognized so a healthcare surrogate could be named and appointed through the advanced directive. Uh, next slide. And <clears throat> this uh, became uh, widely accepted nationally. Um, a federal bill, uh, the Patient Self-Determination Act, was uh, passed in 1991. 
um, <clears throat> extending um, the concept across the country. Um, but still, the legacy was that uh, this has been re in response to legal challenges. Um, and oftentimes, even the worst cases of uh, uh, experience uh, when uh, uh, decisions had to be made when a person had lost capacity for making his or her own uh, decisions and communicating that to the healthcare team. Uh, next slide. And so uh, Kevin has provided this slide, uh, which I find intriguing because I think this is the key to everything that we're talking about here. Um, fear the worst is a defensive position. Uh, it involves primarily legal language and legal mindset, and not being subjected to treatment without consent, and about stopping treatment that's not wanted. Um, and the language used is common to legal proceedings, such as living will, healthcare surrogate, and the like. And the aspiration we have in terms of wooing ourselves towards the best is really a proactive position. It's clinical shared decision-making using medical language and a medical mindset. Uh, the focus is on what a person values, and it's about looking forward and designing a care plan that will be guided by these wishes and values. And we're moving away from the legalistic terms, and we're now talking about advanced directives instead of living wills, and healthcare representatives instead of healthcare surrogate. Next slide. And so what is the advanced directive? What does it do? Um, it really does two things. It appoints a decision maker now, uh, and it provides treatment direction. Uh, it's available to everybody uh, who has capacity for decision making, and you can complete it yourself as long as your signature is there and needs to be witnessed or notarized. Next slide. So I'm going to um, pause on this slide and, and digress a little bit. I want to focus on what's in the black box. Um, and we're, we're going to talk about how this social experiment has been evolving in Oregon. Um, <clears throat> in 1993, uh, we were given our first advanced directive through legislative action. And it came at a time when out-of-hospital do-not-resuscitate-order protocols were being considered. Because as the concept of advanced directives spread across the country, it became very clear that there were times when it just didn't work. Um, if, uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, a person with advanced cancer fills out an advanced directive and says, I do not want to be resuscitated, but I do want comfort and I want to be cared for. And this person lives in an assisted living facility and is offered radiation therapy to control his pain. And in being transported back and forth between the advanced care, excuse me, his um, assisted living facility and the hospital by ambulance, which has paramedics and paramedics function under a, a treatment protocol this person experiences a cardiac arrest. And the protocol requires the um, paramedics to initiate cardiopulmonary resuscitation. This caused a significant hiccup in the whole concept of advanced care planning and what the advanced directives actually offer. 
So in Oregon, we, we actually responded the two ways. One was we created our advanced directive. And at the same time, we started again um, with proposals, proposals amongst um, healthcare workers, um, ethicists, and people concerned about this. And this evolved into the creation of the Oregon Post. Uh, and the first Oregon Post actually was a document that was initiated and, and made public in uh, 1993, about two years after the advanced directive was established by legislature. Um, the post uh, has continued to be modified. It's been managed through the um, uh, uh, Ethics uh, Center at uh, OHSU under the very capable direction of uh, Dr. Susan Toll. Um, and initially, um, it, it focused on all things that would prolong life, such as uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, artificial nutrition, and uh, using antibiotics. But it gradually with experience weaned away from all the um, other elements except for um, supporting um, uh, failure, a uh, cardiorespiratory failure. And, and now the uh, Pulse really um, addresses uh, do not resuscitate orders. Um, on the other hand, uh, the advanced directive by being established through the legislature and having the entire form written into statute, uh, the advanced directive remains stagnant. Um, it's, uh, it can't be updated without legislative action. Uh, and, and honestly, there was no real group that was um, responsible for supervising it or managing it other than Oregon Health Decisions, which very capably in the beginning conducted a, a public education um, <clears throat> effort um, across the state to encourage people to use advanced directives, but uh, really had no power in changing the advanced directive itself. Next slide. <clears throat> so um, during this time, other states um, progressed and changed their advanced directives. The Oregon advanced directive gradually uh, fell out of date. Um, and what really happened was because the Pulse was receiving a lot of attention um, and with its updates, uh, refreshed educational programs across the state to let people know what the new update was. Um, many clinicians began to think of the Pulse in lieu of the advanced directive. And the Pulse became an inappropriate substitute for the advanced directive. Next slide. Such that um, when under um, <clears throat> incentives to conduct um, advanced care planning, um, many clinicians wanted to um, document that they were doing this and found the easiest documentation was to complete a Pulse. Um, this became a real problem when a number of healthcare systems decided to incentivize advanced care planning um, <clears throat> by um, uh, providing incentives to clinicians to do that. Uh, and the numbers of pulse um, 
Pulse saying uh, continue to resuscitate. In other words, the opposite of what the Pulse was intended to began to filter into the registry and actually created uh, serious problems. Um, next slide. So all of this led to a number of imperatives for revision of the post. Um, one was uh, the current medical practice had changed over the last 25 years. Um, and uh, there were many, many more options for treatment and the benefit burden um, con uh, considerations changed. Uh, so listing specific treatment options really was not at all sufficient. Secondly, um, since the 19, excuse me, the 2007-2008 timeframe, palliative care really started to take off in Oregon. And um, in doing that, the goals of care conversation became more prevalent, more critical, and it became clear that uh, the healthcare representative's role was invaluable in uh, participating in the goals of care conversations and making the role of the healthcare representative very, very critical. Uh, and finally, as I've mentioned, the confusion of the pulse at all levels. And what we discovered was uh, even uh, clinicians were having trouble telling the difference um, between the advanced directive and the pulse. The Owen Oregon Medical Association um, submitted a survey uh, which uh, demonstrated that to us. Uh, next slide. Um, I put this slide on here because back around uh, about five years ago, we created this slide to uh, this table to um, indicate and educate the difference between the advanced directive and pulse. And I want to draw your attention to the blue box at the bottom and the second bullet and compare the advanced directive with the pulse. The, as far as the advanced directive is concerned, it's uh, guidelines for an imagined future situation which may arise and for which a person may have preferences for a particular kind of care plan. The POLST, on the other hand, is a specific medical order addressing desired medical interventions for situations that are likely to arise given the patient's health status and prognosis. And I think you can see in this that the initial concept of the advanced directive has actually split into two particular documents, very specific for their very specific purpose. And that's how it's evolving currently. Uh, next slide, please. So what happened? So what happened was around 2014, 2015, um, uh, this reached sort of a critical point in the minds of several people. Uh, and the uh, Oregon Health Leadership Council, uh, in conjunction with the lobbyists from Cambia Health Systems, um, asked to testify before the legislature uh, to address changes in the advanced directive. In so doing, they ran into a group of lawyers, the elder law section of the Oregon Bar, which were also trying to do this for the same reason, because um, a lot of the legal concepts in our advanced directive from, 20, uh, from uh, 1993 also were out of date and causing problems for them. Uh, Senator Floyd Porzanski uh, from Eugene uh, sponsored a 
committee to present to the legislature proposals for a new advanced directive. Uh, that was started in 2015. The committee met, made proposals, uh, but the, their first proposal to the legislature never made it out of committee. And finally, in 2019, four years later, um, the legislature passed a law that created an advanced directive adoption committee to address changes in the advanced directives, but that law actually did take care of the legal concerns. So we ended up with a hybrid solution at that point. Um, we had the same old advanced directive after 2019, um, but basically in new wrapping. Um, and what happened following that was the advanced uh, directive adoption committee met and created new language for the essential part of the advanced directive. Uh, this committee uh, of 13 included lawyers, doctors, palliative care experts, and other stakeholders. <clears throat> and our proposal was accepted pretty much in the 2021 um, legislature. Um, <clears throat> next slide. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself <laughs> if you go back. So what did we do? Um, our focus was uh, to woo towards the best. Um, ex exactly um, <clears throat> what uh, Kevin's slide suggested to us a moment ago. We wanted to promote the role of the healthcare representative to use the form to raise issues that could and should be discussed with the healthcare representative. So the language in the healthcare uh, and the advanced directive is now focused on training the healthcare representative. The second point was to move the function of the advanced directive into a more equitable state. And, and that's the next slide. Um, it's sensitive to persons with disabilities for whom the notion of quality of life, which is common in almost all advanced directives, um, is really a red flag for discrimination. And so we've worked uh, to move away from that kind of language. We've also focused on plain language since the um, healthcare uh, since the advanced directive previously almost required a college education to understand and utilize, uh, plain language at the eighth grade level seemed much more appropriate. We've been working towards that, although not all our suggestions were taken by the legislature in that regard. And finally, we're recognizing the ethnic diversity of our citizens to promote translations into the 13 most prevalent languages spoken in Oregon. So this slide, I'm uh, proud to show the 13 languages. Um, also to call your attention to how you can find the advanced directive and the important user's guide, which is in plain language. If you just Google advanced directive Oregon.gov and the .gov is important because if you just uh, Google advanced directive Oregon, you get a number of commercial products which are not the same as our advanced directive. You need to get to this site and then you can download it um, and you can download the um, uh, user's guide. So this is a work in progress. Um, the advanced care, um, excuse me, the advanced directive um, planning uh, adoption committee is now um, the advanced directive uh, advisory committee. Uh, and you can uh, Google us on the Oregon Health Authority ADAC website to give us feedback, but you can also give feedback directly to the three of us who are <laughs> here sitting on your panel. 
um, because what we have out there is an imperfect product and we're working to make it better. And now we'll lift the hood and have a, a look-see at the, how it works. Great. Uh, thanks, Dr. English. Um, to get us into the mindset of how the new advanced directive fits within the evolution of advanced care planning and the old advanced directive, we're going to use a, a clinical case to guide our, our conversation. So this involves a patient who's 79 years old, a woman who was widowed five years ago, has five adult children, retired high school teacher, is active in her church, uh, and is uh, affiliated as a Christian. She lives alone and was fully independent before she suffered a severe cerebrovascular injury. She was brought to the hospital and full treatment ICU care was uh, thought to be the, the path forward uh, with the intent of rescuing her to acute recovery and long-term recovery. However, on day three in the ICU, the team uh, understood her prognosis to be highly unlikely to return to baseline. It was remotely possible, but improbable uh, recovery of most functions. And it was likely the case that she was going to be dependent for her activities of daily living, ADLs, after a long-term recovery. And she did not have an advanced directive in this scenario. And the family says that the patient never discussed her preferences. As we'll see, we're going to use the same case and uh, tweak some of the variables so you can see how uh, the advanced care planning and the advanced directive interfaces with shared decision making in this case. So this is a uh, an image of the uh, old 1993 advanced directive form. Jen. Yeah, so we thought we would just kind of outline um, what this patient might have selected on the traditional 1993 document. And this is pretty standard. And I just kind of went through for this fictitious patient and I selected items that I've seen the most with this advanced directive. And then we kind of look again, is this helpful? Does this really give the medical team or her family, her surrogate decision makers some guidance? Or is it kind of creating more gray area? So um, yeah, this, thanks for doing that, Kevin. So the green items are things that um, is actually pretty common in the old form, which is language we moved away from with this new one, which is this notion that somebody can say, I want tube feeding only as my healthcare provider recommends. There's not a lot we can do with that. I feel like a lot of times a physician or a healthcare provider would say, well, I think a, we could do a time-limited trial of an artificial um, tube feeding, especially if that's a bridge, kind of a bridge back to health. But if that's kind of the end state, kind of a destination therapy, that's something different. So then what would the healthcare provider recommend? right it just it doesn't give us a lot of guidance um the red does give a little bit more guidance because it's more explicit and so in this scenario she said if i were permanently unconscious then no i would not want tube feeding um, and no i would not want um, life support measures so just wanted to highlight a, a few elements here about how it it wasn't feeling um, to Dr. English's point, it, it just wasn't feeling like a very useful document. It had become a bit outdated. 
And the kind of the genesis of, of this was really around those cases around Karen and Quinlan, Terry Schiavo, a lot of these really, um, Nancy Cruzan, a lot of these late 80s, early 90s cases that were kind of sensationalized in the media. And so these documents, you can tell, are, are very much kind of part and parcel to, the, to those really egregious scenarios. And then this one, just um, I don't think we'll spend too much time on it. This is kind of the supplement to the original advanced directive, which most folks I have seen in as an end user in the hospital have not completed. It does give a little bit more guidance. It was trying to drive at um, kind of health states and functional status. Um, for example, for her quality of life, she said that being conscious and aware of what's happening around me is very important to me. Um, and communicating with and relating to others is very important. Um, and then she said things like um, being able to move about. No, but then this one's interesting. Living independently without the aid of life support machines, undecided. So again, it, I think that the idea was just to give folks the most leeway in case they weren't sure, because these are hypothetical in the future scenarios. But it just, it just isn't that helpful in the in the long run. So the first version of this case, the, the patient did not have an advanced directive and the family did not recall having a conversation with her. So they were, uh, if you will, stuck with having to make the best decision they could with very limited information. And I uh, neglected to mention the statutory hierarchy that would point to the uh, healthcare representative for this patient in those circumstances, which would have been the majority of her adult children. Now, in this case, using the form that Jen just um, provided, uh, the patient had de designated her spouse as her healthcare representative, which doesn't really help because he passed away five years ago. And preferences include life-sustaining treatment as my physician or provider recommends, which again, with a prognosis such as it is, there's a lot of questions and a lot of, a lot of um, angst around the uncertainty of which direction this could go. And then we move over to the new form and we just did some highlights from it, some excerpts. So we added a section about advanced progressive illness. Um, actually, that might have been some language in the old form, but it's a little bit more explicit, right, about and the idea is to really drive it at better guidance. So if she had advanced progressive illness, which now with her prognosis and diagnosis, we would say she falls into that category. Um, there's some pretty clear options and the idea is just to select one. And when she selected, I do not want treatments to sustain my life, such as artificial feeding and hydration with feeding tubes, fluids, dialysis, breathing machines. I would wanna be kept comfortable and allowed to die naturally. So you can imagine that gives an incredible amount of guidance, both to her family, her surrogates, and to the healthcare provider team. And you can also notice that the language is far more easy to understand. And so the committee worked with, um, the legislator made, legislature made sure that we worked with the plain language specialist to ensure that this is very user-friendly and I believe at a fifth or sixth grade reading level. So I'm pleased with the changes in that regard. So here I just kind of hypothetically went through with, again, kind of themes I've, I've heard from folks and seen in advanced directives. This is again, the new document. So we added some free text 
options and they're completely optional. The, the document is still valid even if you don't put any kind of directions or guidance in and you just appoint a healthcare agent, healthcare representative, and then have it signed and um, the patient signs it and then witness. However, we wanted to create space for folks to kind of weigh in and give even more guidance that, that can kind of be a goalpost for the physicians and the healthcare team taking care of her. So I'll just move over to the last box. Um, she's saying that she'd be willing to be in a care facility of some kind. She wouldn't mind even being in a wheelchair. And she wants to be able to see her grandchildren grow up. So those two are a little bit in conflict with one another, but not not really. And I added those because that's not that uncommon, right? Where people have some cognitive dissonance about what they'd like. So she's saying, oh, I could live with some disability as long as I can live longer, hopefully, and see my grandchildren grow. Um, but I think that this would be far more useful um, to, to folks in the hospital setting. So back to our case, uh, we see that with this new advanced directive, uh, she's able to appoint her spouse and her daughter, who's a physician, as an alternative uh, healthcare representative. Her preferences include uh, not to in, uh, not to implement life support uh, or life-sustaining treatment unless uh, her chance of recovery uh, to interact with her family. And she agreed to a two-feeding trial. One of the other things about this new advanced directive form with these free text options is to really enrich the opportunity to um, explain your instructions with a bit more of a values-based uh, rationale. So um, from this document, we now more easily can see that independence is something that's important to her. Family interactions are also very important in seeing her grandchildren grow. And that gives us a lot more clarity around not only what do we do during this hospitalization, but if she were to survive, where do we go from here? Kevin, I just wanted to check in on time because mm -hmm. we want to make sure we can add, make sure we have enough time for yeah, those questions. With getting through the case, let's uh, make sure we just wrap up and uh, we'll uh, <coughs> kind of accelerate here to the end and uh, get to uh, folks' questions, which are already streaming in. Great. Um, so quickly, uh, just a few of the changes that uh, we want to highlight for folks um, is that in part, the advanced directive is moving away from the direction of the Oregon Healthcare Decisions document supplementary form, as well as kind of that legalistic paradigm that Dr. English described from that checkbox, uh, thinking about those worst of cases, um, two more having actionable guidance, uh, pieces that uh, if this is a decision being made in a critical care unit like Nick's uh, case um, identifies, that uh, a, a clinician will be able to see, oh, well, this patient was thinking about this precise moment and is trying to direct us toward comfort care. Um, again, not to say that that will always be a one-to-one -one correspondence, but heading in that direction of more actionable guidance. And not just having places where we have a series of check boxes that you're like, okay, well, how does that answer to number two, get in conversation with number five, but to also create space for the patient to be able to supply some of their own language that way. Uh, Dr. English is going to describe a little bit how this um, uh, paradigm is trying to head us in the direction of providing better training to the healthcare representative in promoting that conversation. One of the valuable pieces of the Oregon Advanced Directive has been to require um, historically a signature of the accepting healthcare representative to make sure that there's that conversation and so that the evolving paradigm continues to put that at center stage, uh, to borrow a metaphor which we picked up on 
in a moment. Uh, mentioned that this is an iterative process. We're not socializing the sort of final uh, product here, but just more of an iterative step on the journey, uh, which includes something like uh, Dr. English mentioned the user's guide, which we think is going to be uh, really a game changer in helping facilitate those conversations, whether they're in the comfort of a family home, um, in a, a clinic setting, or even with um, a patient's legal counsel with, with your lawyer. Uh, and then finally, um, there's long been the recognition that we can improve the process around health equity. Changes around plain language, changes around translation um, are all um, heading in that direction of making sure this paradigm is where it needs to be into the future. So we'll uh, sort of uh, share this for a moment um, and just again describe that where we're heading um, is uh, where the Advanced Direction Adoption Committee is heading is to continue the good work. Um, including having dialogues with uh, folks uh, for an inclusive process into the future. And we wanted to close with, uh, before we get to the questions, an analogy of what some of this work really may be all about in terms of imagining that inability to do the shared decision making with the patient, with the provider, um, but having to rely on somebody to step in and act as that patient's voice. So Woody, do you want to talk about uh, this oh, analogy. Well, just go to the next slide then. So the whole purpose of the advanced directive really is to train, as we're conceiving it now, is to train your healthcare representative. <clears throat> and, uh, and this came to mind, <clears throat> thinking of the healthcare representative as your understudy for the shared decision-making conversation, the goals of care conversation. Uh, somebody needs to represent you there and represent what's important to you so that the care plan can be written um, the way you would want it if you could speak yourself. Mm -hmm. So the events directive is really not about a piece of paper, but it's about writing your script. And the questions in the advanced directive are to help you and prompt you to know what sorts of things you should be addressing in writing your script and then what sorts of um, topics you should use in conveying your thoughts to your trusted decision maker, to your healthcare representative, so that if you're not there, they can step in for you. And with that, we've got uh, over 15 minutes to begin some uh, conversation, which I already see the questions uh, streaming in here. Um, so we're going to go from the highly uh, general into kind of what it's all about. Uh, to uh, the much more specific, and we're going to talk a little bit um, about a question who that has come in from uh, Dr. Prasanna Krishnasamy, um, uh, a colleague um, in ethics as well as a um, uh, physician um, in the clinics and with their um, residency program, who writes, the new, advanced, the new Oregon Advanced Directive includes only three situations where a patient can express their wishes. It excludes the previous available option, a condition in which administration of life-sustaining procedures would not benefit the principal's medical condition and would cause permanent and severe pain, which is still part of ORS 127-635, um, the mm -hmm. uh, statute. Could you please speak to the background to exclude this condition? Uh, presumably in the, the new form. Does this not create some inequity between the patients with old forms and those who complete the new forms? Hmm. I think there's two questions in that with the mm -hmm. equity one, but I can take the first. 
So I, I remember this dialogue that we had as a committee around the old language and which language we thought should be transferred into the new document and which we thought we should perhaps move away from. And of course, one of the reasons the attorneys, the estate law attorneys on the committee were so pivotal is they knew the statute nearly to memory. I mean, I was very impressed mm -hmm. with their, their working knowledge of it. And I think that that language around, um, do you mind repeating that language of the- um, the Would, would not benefit the principal's medical condition and would yep. cause permanent, permanent and severe pain. The permanent and severe pain we thought could be interpreted by le by being kind of a leading question. And um, it, it seemed different than somebody who might be experiencing suffering, which sometimes go hand in hand, but not always. Um, suffering's a bit different. Um, it's a whole person experience and kind of, um, but, but the pain and permanent suffering just seemed like language that wasn't as accessible to everyone. It wasn't plain language and it didn't seem to be a huge value add. So, so we ended up excluding that and hoping that the other categories um, could kind of capture most states, most kind of health outcomes. Anything that either of you would add to that? Subtract from that? No, I, but to the second part of the question, you know, I think the um, it's interesting. There, there was a lot of eyes on this document and on the proposed revision to the statute, which led to the uh, new advanced directive form, including um, legislative, uh, uh, I forget the, their exact title, but their, their whole job is to reconcile proposed or new law with existing statute, mm -hmm. statutory law. Mm -hmm. um, and they went through this with a fine-toothed comb. So they, they must have seen um, that the conditions and the issues within that particular clause fit with um, the, the new advanced directive form. Having said that, I think the, um, from a practical standpoint, as, and I'm speaking as an ethicist, not as an attorney or as a clinician, an older form would still be very, very helpful and informative uh, of clinical shared decision making. So it's not that an old form exists and it doesn't fit the, the current form, therefore it's null and void. I still think from a practical standpoint, it would be referenced uh, as if it were um, at least an influential document uh, capturing uh, the best um, the best expression of the patient's wishes at the time it was completed. Thank you. We have another question coming in um, who uh, writes, there are some who argue that moving from the check box to the fillable field is the wrong way to go. Instead, they promote the quickest and most streamlined advanced directive possible. Just the min specs. What are your thoughts about this? Well, I'd be curious how my colleagues would answer that question. I, I suppose I would respond simply by saying, the uh, open text, uh, those those written fields are optional and there's still a very um, min-spec type of um, communication that this form allows you to do. So you can make the form as, uh, it, it, you can enrich the form as much as you want or keep it as simple as you want, uh, including just identifying a trusted healthcare representative. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, th I think 
What's not fully appreciated is that um, you, you don't have to complete everything on the form. Um, if all you wanted to do was identify a healthcare representative and then sign it, that's really all you need to do and the form is still complete and valid. Um, if you didn't want to choose a healthcare representative and just wanted to answer the questions and check boxes that, and sign it, then it's perfectly valid. You don't have to appoint a healthcare representative and you don't have to write anything in the narrative spaces. One thing that um, I, I didn't emphasize in, in my um, previous remarks is that one thing that we really wanted to be sure people recognize is that you can attach a document to this form, to the advanced directive. If you like five wishes, for example, and you've said, I've worked this through with five wishes and my daughter is my healthcare representative, I don't want to mess with anything else you have. That's fine. Appoint your daughter as your healthcare representative and attach five wishes to your advanced directive, and it's a complete form and perfectly legal and valid. So the extra work that it seems this new form requires really isn't extra work if you've already done some of the work yourself in another form. You can just bring it in and and basically attach it to the form, and you're done. Uh, so, so I'm, I'm sympathetic to people who look at it and sort of say, oh my goodness, there's so much here. But if you've already done the work, then you don't have to redo it. Um, on the other hand, if you haven't ever thought about it, uh, the, the steps that we put into it, I think, do help you get a good toehold and start in how to work with your healthcare representative to come up with a really good um, advanced directive. May I add something before we move on? So I, I would say for folks who are in a position where they help someone, a patient, um, complete an advanced directive or they recommend that they fill one out, I would really recommend that they give it a shot. And if they're willing to complete the whole thing, just let them know it's a, it's a really great um, guiding document for physicians and their healthcare team. Um, if they are someone who um, really feel strongly that they do not want their spouse to speak for them or they do not want their son or daughter to speak for them um, and they're not that interested in completing an advanced directive anyway, I would strongly recommend that they do complete at least the healthcare surrogate, the, the healthcare representative portion, right? So that otherwise, by default in the state of Oregon, we will go to that hierarchy if the patient can't speak to themselves. And then the other kind of category of folks I think about are ones who maybe don't have someone in their corner. Maybe they don't didn't come from a large family and they're largely deceased and they don't have a friend or, or a neighbor that they would feel that they could trust to be their surrogate's decision maker. I would strongly recommend that they do complete an advanced directive and fill out those kinds of healthcare wishes sections and their preferences for healthcare. Those are kind of the three types of um, patients I think we see that, you know, that I think um, if, if you're able to give them some guidance, that's that's definitely what we'd recommend. The, the last comment I'll add to this is uh, the advanced directive is not necessarily you do once and then you're done and you don't ever have right. to revisit it. Uh, there are, and the user's guide points this out uh, quite nicely, there are in, there are life events um, that uh, in rec where it's recommended you consider updating or revising your advanced directive. So it's you know you, you complete it once doesn't mean that you don't go back and revisit it. 
So there, there are, there is the opportunity to refine, change, uh, or otherwise update your directive. Geez, Nick, it's starting to sound like the advanced directive from my 20s before having kids. Now, four kids later, uh, approaching a different uh, decade is a little uh, different in terms of what mm -hmm. preferences we might express and the like. Well, I'll take a moderator's discretion here and deflect one of these questions. Is there a simpler version? I have had patients and families who are overwhelmed by the many pages and questions. This is uh, precisely what we're talking about in this presentation in terms of the new Oregon Advanced Directive form and efforts to continue to hone the form, revise the form, are an attempt to make it simpler, easier to fill out. And the previous question was more around that initiative to, to make it even more streamlined into the future. And so that's a, a tension um, in the field right now that uh, the, the commentator um, is picking up on. And hopefully over time with now making some changes uh, 25 years later, 25 plus years later, uh, we'll start to incrementally improve on that simplicity and accessibility for folks. But I'm going to ask this question, which I think just sounds fun. Um, and uh, maybe we can start, Jen, with you. Uh, my favorite question to ask an audience presenting on advanced care planning is, why do we spend so much time on a formal legal instrument in an era of global communications, social media, and the like? Why not go the route of today's napkin advanced directive and sanction a route of TikTok or tweet your end of life preferences and just be done with it? Hmm. That's a great question. You know, it's interesting because there's been some movement kind of informally around this notion of a video for advanced care planning. Um, and there was this app for a while called Cake, which the idea was creating an advanced directive is as easy as cake. Mm -hmm. And we make it a piece of cake for you. Um, it didn't get a lot of traction. And I suspect that was largely not because there wasn't kind of a groundswell support of that. Um, but I think it, it just kind of got into some legal statute kind of, oh, I don't know that that would be kind of admissible. Would a hospital intensivist accept that? I, in my experience, I think that the napkin and the, whether it was a video or whether it's um, a conversation that they had with their next door neighbor a year ago when their other neighbor passed away suddenly, um, but had a two week course, let's say in the hospital, and then the two folks ended up talking about it. In my mind, it's all advanced care planning. I think it's a very big, broad umbrella term. I do think for the purposes of an organ legal document, we, we kind of have a lot of scaffolding around it and some limits. Um, but I think pragmatically speaking, I would imagine that that would still be information that the end users as a social worker in the hospital, myself, um, an ethicist, a physician would still give some credence to that. It just doesn't have the same legal footing. I don't know what the two of you might. Yeah, yeah, I just add, I think there's there's two ways uh, to answer that. There's the legal response, which you're uh, alluding to, and then there's the ethical response. Mm. Uh, the Cruzan case, one of the one of the key factors or the key holdings in the Cruzan case was uh, deferring to the states the right to establish the evidentiary standard of what creates a legally binding advanced directive. Mm. So you have states that have a higher evidentiary standard, meaning it has to be statutory form, signed, witnessed, and that's the only way it can be legally binding um, versus other states where it's the napkin signed and dated um, or the TikTok that's timestamped with various filters. Um, 
so uh, so yes, there would be a legal question around the evidentiary standard, but that's a legal question for how legally binding is the is the form. The ethical dimension to this is how authentic is the expression of wishes in whatever medium uh, is used, and how do we then use that source of evidence in our shared decision making? So it's it may not meet the statutory or evidentiary standard for a legally binding advanced directive, but hey, this was a video recorded three days ago um, in direct anticipation of this kind of clinical situation. It seems pretty relevant, mm -hmm. not legally binding in the same strict sense, but shouldn't we consider it in some form or fashion? Mm -hmm. I've got an anonymous uh, comment here that uh, pairs nicely with one by uh, Dr. Linda DeSitter, our regional medical director for palliative care <coughs> here in Oregon. And uh, I'll read the uh, one of the questions, um, but there's kind of a few um, themes in the chat coming up with this. Obviously, most people who have advanced directives have the previous version. Is there any reason to encourage them to change to the new version? Or is that mainly for people who are completing an advanced directive for the first time? Yeah, I would say um, if if we can kind of lean on the five D's, um, it's kind of a helpful way to remember when is a good time to revise your advanced directive. Certainly if someone completed the old form two or three years ago, I would say leave well enough alone unless they have a change they'd like to make. Um, certainly any advanced directive is better than no advanced directive as we kind of highlighted in the, um, in the case study. I would say, so the five D's are if there's been a death in the family, sometimes that just becomes kind of a, a thought-provoking organic opportunity to think about your own care. If you experience a new diagnosis, um, sometimes, oftentimes it's dementia or cancer seem to be the two most common that kind of spur someone to complete NAD. Um, the, the next is a divorce, if you had, especially if you've named your spouse. Mm -hmm. And I believe the last is a decline, if you've experienced a decline in your health. Um, which usually is around aging, right? Mm -hmm. um, so and decade and the decade. Mm -hmm. the if ten years have gone by. So I would say if one of those criteria are met, sure, recommend someone complete a new one. Otherwise, I think it's probably well enough alone. What we are asking though, um, is that for folks at Providence, if somebody's asking you to complete or wants a form, that we we do drive them to the new document and we kind of purge the old. Um, we don't need to be handing those out anymore. Um, we'd rather have the folks be driven to the new one. Well, I don't think Dr. Losher is being all that uh, subtle with sending a hedge trimmer over at one minute to go, but uh, <laughs> it's very effective, uh, I, I guess. Uh, we do have a minute to go, and, and I'll just end with, and, and maybe uh, Dr. English, you could start with, what advice would you give a busy hospitalist or resident physician about advanced directives, whether on the completion side or the interpretation side of things? And we'll end there. <clears throat> well, I think, Clearly, the advanced directive uh, offers a person um, in terms of the healthcare representative to talk to. And uh, I think that that's probably the most important part of the advanced directive. Do you have an advanced directive? And if so, who did you name as your uh, healthcare representative? Recognizing that the new advanced directive allows only one person to speak at a time. And if that first choice of a healthcare representative cannot be found, then the next one on the list would be the healthcare representative that you talk to. 
and so it goes down um, the three that are offered in the advanced directive and so you can not go down those three people I, I think the hospitals really needs to talk to somebody well with that we are at time and i'd like to thank uh, my three uh, panelists here for uh, joining today and for the team at the providence center for Healthcare ethics and our uh, wonderful support team to broadcast today from the Ethics Center. I'll tease that if folks have an interest in talking about the intersection of advanced directives, pulse forms, we have some ethics education in our ethics core program, which we're going to be uh, broadcasting the marketing effort for the fall um, uh, in just a couple of weeks here. Uh, so stay tuned for cracking the code of advanced care planning with uh, your local ethicist. But in the meantime, uh, thanks to everyone um, and uh, hope you have a good summer and we'll see you uh, later in the fall when medical grand rounds resumes. Thank you.